Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I think as parents, we assume that kids are going to just know the right way to do things. You have to teach them first and then train them by teaching them to do it over and over again until they actually get it. Imagine trying to teach your child how to tie his shoes without the practice principle. If the practice principle is vital for teaching such morally neutral tasks as tying shoes, how much more important is it for training children in Christ-like character? I speak to parents all the time who come up to me and they see what's happening, but they don't know what to do. And I just want to stand up and say, you can do this. Here is a solution. This is Yvette Hampton, host of the Schoolhouse Rocked podcast. Join us each week for a new episode as we offer encouragement and resources on biblical discipleship from popular speakers and authors, as well as parents just like you and me. Find out more at schoolhouserocked.com or listen anywhere you find your favorite podcast. Hello and welcome to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern and I am joined by a uh, whole variety, like uh, it's like a sideshow of people. Um, we have Sarah Jane Bentley. Sarah Jane, welcome to the show. I don't love being called a sideshow. <laughs> oh no, no, I didn't mean you. <laughs> uh, I meant Tim, obviously. Tim, how's it going? Right. Well, that's fine. Hey, I love it. The sideshow water is warm. Come on in. <laughs> <laughs> Heidi, whose water do you want to get into right now? <laughs> that might be the weirdest question. I I've think ever definitely, been asked. It's, it's definitely up there in the top five weirdest questions I have asked. So we're here to discuss our reading, our reading years. And again, I'll summarize for you. I'm joined by Sarah Jane Bentley, Heidi White, and Tim McIntosh. Uh, you have heard from all of us in various permutations and combinations uh, throughout the course of the last year. But we wanted to join forces together to to have a conversation that is just specifically about uh, 2019 in reading. We're going to have two conversations, actually. This first one is going to be a conversation about our fiction reading lives this year. We're going to talk about some of the books that we love, some of the books that we didn't love so much, and uh, you know, offer a few recommendations at least. And hopefully, we'll have a pretty wide variety of of. Uh, well, hopefully, together we will curate a wide and uh, curious uh, reading list for you to to uh, add to your Goodreads list or Amazon wish list or whatever it is that you do. Then after that, we are going to do a fiction episode as well. That episode will, I mean, a nonfiction episode. Sorry, that episode will show up on the Patreon feed for those of you who are supporting the show there. So we will dive into some of the, the nonfiction books. Some of that will be, I'm sure, uh, criti- critical you know, examinations of great fiction and poetry. Some of it will be um, maybe a book on sports. I'll just throw that out there. <laughs> oh. a, a, a much wider variety of uh, kinds of things, perhaps. So if you are on Patreon and you are uh, interested in listening to that, that will be coming up in the next few days. But first, let's talk fiction. And here's the first question that I have. Um, and I'll ask Tim this first, I guess, just because when I looked up, his was the first name that I saw. Tim, how many books of fiction yeah. would you guess that you read this year? Not for close reads. Not many. I 
probably six, maybe even five. I, okay, so my next question is, how do you not know the difference between six and five? That seems like a like not hard to guess. No, I just haven't recounted. <laughs> I haven't made the list out in uh, an exhaustive list. So I, I think I know the difference between five and six. I just don't know which it was. <laughs> is the question whether you finished one of them, and so you don't know if you should count that as six? No, or? no, 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 no. No, I just didn't. I just didn't make my list. I should have made my exhaustive list. <laughs> okay, well, so did any of those books? just blow you away any of those we'll be generous and say six did any of those six books so fiction that you read not for the podcast blow you away so like that you were just like I, this is I absolutely yes. this book i'd recommend it to everyone. <laughs> yes two of them did and they're both books that i this is my um i have read multiple times the two books okay. are war and peace okay and I read all the pretty horses for like, I don't know, the 18th time. I just can't stop reading that book. I cannot stop reading that book. And I, and I read it in part, I read all the pretty horses by Cormac McCarthy in part because I was driving to Santa Fe, New Mexico for an arts conference and Cormac McCarthy Pulitzer winner, in my opinion, the greatest living novelist in the English language lives in Santa Fe. And I was kind of cooking up this idea that I would try to meet Cormac McCarthy because I could stalk, probably find him. Is what you're I was going to gonna stalk him. I, yes. And I did a little bit of research when I arrived in Santa Fe and I decided that it would be wise for me to not stalk Cormac McCarthy because according to the research that I did, he is, as I feared, a curmudgeon. He's not, and famous. I did not want to have. <laughs> he's not famous for being. Sociable. What's that? He's really not famous for being sociable. Yes, in fact, he's famous for being unsociable. He lives mm. in Santa Fe. Yeah, he lives in Santa Fe, and so like I did a, a, a snippet of the research that I did is I went to a bookstore that I knew he ordered books from fairly regularly, and I spoke to the people behind the counter, and I said, "Hey, can I just I don't know ask you a question." And I kind of put forth my idea that maybe I could go to Cormac McCarthy's office and just kind of very politely write him a note, just say, hey, I really admire your work, blah, blah, blah. And the woman behind the counter said, I, I don't know if that would be a great idea because I have seen people approach him in the bookstore and they have not been welcomed warmly by him. And I was like, that's all I need to know. I'm going to not pursue this plan. I'm going to walk away because... I like him so much that it would actually like probably diminish my, my opinion of his books just a little bit. Even if I knew that, you know, he's a normal human being, his books, his books not should, should not be necessarily judged by his interpersonal skills or lack thereof. I still think for my sake, I'm just not going to pursue that plan. You know, I think about this all the time. If I was famous because I was, well, for any reason at all, and people kept coming up to me, wanting to talk to me, how would I feel about that? So let's have a conversation about that just for a quick second. Sarah Jane, let's pretend that you are like Emily Dickinson famous. Was <laughs> and... she famous in her own No, I mean now. Like now. So funny. That you... <laughs> like famous as she is now. Let's pretend that, okay, do you want to choose someone else? <laughs> Fine. No, no, like JK Rowling. Oh, me. I can do sort of reclusive, strange, eschatologically <laughs> obsessed um, New Englander. 
<laughs> okay, well, see, that's why I thought of her. So, um, so, so if so, if you were that famous and people came up to you when you were in the bookstore, what would you do? Oh, if I was Emily Dickinson, I just wouldn't be in the bookstore. I'd be in my attic <laughs> making the little. Yeah, I feel like we're really getting bogged down book. in the characteristics know, of the specific uh, yeah. person that I'm. <laughs> my imagination. Um, I think I would be politely dismissive. Yeah, but how is that? That's just normal, right? Like, would yeah. we like it? Is what, that what you're asking? Would we be? Would we welcome the notoriety? Would be? Would we be excited about being recognized and known for our work? Yeah, I guess so. I th- this really has nothing to do with the conversation. Right? As a writer, yeah. mm-hmm. hmm. I feel like the right answer is, man, I'd be so much. I. I wouldn't want to be known. I'd be thrilled. I'd be so excited. I feel like you read my book. Like I put everything into that book. Do you like it? This is amazing. Someone liked my book. Like maybe I'd get tired of it. You'd be you'd be eating, drinking champagne and eating oysters I with that would. person. By, I I'd by, be like, within thirty me, minutes. Tell me what you liked about it. No, stop. No, 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 stop. Like I, I <laughs> would be so excited that someone liked my work. So maybe it would get old. Maybe I get tired yep. of it or get awkward with it. But it, I I mean. We're all writers. We'd I'd be thrilled. Mm, yeah, I, I feel like that's the thing, though. Maybe maybe by the time you're like seventy five or whatever he is, you'd after a while, it just gets old, right? Probably. Like you're just tired of being having to be on, so to speak. When J.K. Rowling came to school to speak to the boys, she um, walked into the room, and there was a spontaneous standing ovation that went on for about five or six minutes. They just absolutely loved meeting her um and she was really kind of touched and overwhelmed by it i think she welled up oh yeah and then she went on to give her talk but that never normally happens normally you know the speaker walks in and everyone's quiet so mm. <laughs> um right yeah i think that that would be Sarah Jane, do you think it was do you think that she was that her response would have been different if it was a bunch of adults i would stand up and cheer for jk rowling I would freak out if J.K. Rowling walked in the room. But would she respond differently if she was walking into a room of adults who were giving an ovation? Oh, I see. Yeah, maybe. That, it was a sense that she had kind of inspired the imaginations of those young boys. And they- yeah. But there's also a difference between walking into a room where you're about to give a talk and every, you're kind of like prepared yourself to be a featured guest as opposed to you're just kind of browsing in a bookstore and then Tim walks up to you. And he's all sweaty, mm-hmm. and he like wants to give you a sweaty handshake. He's like I'm sideshow. Please, Sergio, I just really love, I really love your poetry, and I just want to talk to you about your poetry and how much it means to me. And can you sign this? And this one too? Can you sign it? Selfie. Could you could you dedicate this one to to Tim, please? Can you do a selfie with it? <laughs> can you imagine someone asking Tim McCarthy for a selfie? Oh my goodness! Actually. Yeah, I think the world might just implode if that if he like consented to that. I wouldn't. Would he say, I wouldn't. He would say he, some sort of declarative sentence. He'd be like, without punctuation, heads or tails. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what what depends on it? Everything. There's a brilliant um, satire of Cormac McCarthy's The Road, written by Craig Brown. I don't know if you've ever come across it. It's in the Lost no. Diaries. It is so funny. It's a recipe for making pasta. 
in the style of Cormac McCarthy's The Road. That sounds amazing. <laughs> if I was Cormac McCarthy, I would literally carry that coin around. It's like whenever someone came up to me. Put the water in the pot. Put the pot on the fire. <laughs> the fire with the water, with the salt, with the pasta. Get the knife and chop, 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 and chopping get chopped. And it just kind of—it's so funny. Awesome. It's after that you can't read the road seriously ever again. Oh, so. oh! You're going to hurt Tim's feelings. My heart. Well, okay. So to <laughs> yeah, get, my back heart. to the actual conversation, uh, briefly, okay. why why is all the pretty horses? Um, you've why have you read it so many times, and why does it keep? You know, um, why 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 does it stay as a heart book for you? To to use your phrase. Oh gosh! Oh, David. This is like one of those questions that, you know, you kind of dream of someone asking you live on the air on a podcast. And now that you ask it, I'm totally ill-prepared to respond. I think it is, I think it is a book that is about metaphysics. I, and, and I think it is done in the most, some of the most beautiful truthful, most frightening writing that I have ever read. But I think that he is really concerned with the biggest questions that like, we are always like, trying to probe on the show. God and death. It, that, God and death, and I think human love. That's what the whole book is about. And Horses. And horses, but even horses, Sarah Jane, the horses are about God. It's about God. And it's about, um, because he has these long, incredible passages about the sort of construction of the horse, like what happens inside of a horse. And it's like the only time that he really editorializes is when he's editorializing in this, um, almost like a Thomistic way about the rib cage in the heart of a horse, <laughs> which I'm like turning everyone who's listened to this podcast is far off of the book. It's that can possibly be. Which yeah, is but such what about the gunfights and the romance? Oh, the gunfights and the romance are fantastic. They're fantastic. I'm just trying to help Everything you about that book is fantastic. Yeah. No, it's one of actually, absolutely. It's on it's definitely on my Mount Rushmore Western novels and probably in my top 10 of all novels, probably that whole trilogy. is <clears throat> amazing. Yeah. Absolutely. Superb. Hmm. Sarah Jane. Um, is there a novel that you read this year? Well, actually let me ask you how many novels have you read this year? Would you guess novels or, 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 uh, or fiction works of fiction, fiction, including drama and poetry. I'd say every 10 text so far and the holidays are here so hopefully a few more before 2020 and how, and how many of them were just for for your own pleasure and edification and not because you had to teach them what's the difference yeah well now i stand corrected <laughs> and i feel bad about myself um <laughs> i hope that i i teach and um, the ones that i enjoy and they are for my own edification as well. So some of them I did teach. Um, some of them I didn't. I think I, so I didn't teach Dante's Inferno 
I didn't teach housekeeping by Marilyn Robinson. Mm. Um, I read in parenthesis by David Jones, which was, uh, I think is the most moving and powerful account of world war one in mm. maybe in any media mm. actually mm. gave no. in parentheses. Yeah. And it's a, it's a fiction book. It's a prose poem. Really? So T.S. Eliot wrote the preface for it, and it's a bit like The Wasteland, but sort of better. Hold on now. Hold on. Let's take a step back and have a conversation about the sentence which just came out of your mouth. It's sort of like The Wasteland, but better. Is this because it's this good or because you don't you don't uh, feel about The Wasteland like most people do? Oh, no, I love The Wasteland. So this is just that good? Yeah. It's hmm. amazing. And the author's name again? David Jones. He's a kind of eccentric Welshman who was an artist and um, and then ended up living in London after the war. He survived the war. And it's sort of, when he's writing it, it's as if he's aware that the war he's in is going to be mythologized in poetry and he writes it into the mythology of poetry. So, so the poem is layered with references to lots of other epic poems. There are lots of classical mm. references, there are references to ancient Welsh poetry, um, Chaucer, the Bible, and it's, there are lots of different voices and characters. And there's this one sort of protagonist called die of the great coat and in the very middle of the poem he gives this boast about all the wars that he's been in and it's not um chronologically possible for him to have been in all those wars um but he sort of Mm. says you know i was there when they laid christ in the tomb i was there when um we went and fought the trojans to reclaim helen um i was there um, in these ancient Welsh battles in Catrife. So it's, it's, just, uh, it's just amazing because it shows something about the timelessness of war, perhaps. And he called it in parenthesis because he wanted mm. to write about the gaps between the action and what the, what the mm. soldiers were thinking about mm. as they were waiting. Mm. So this is called in parenthesis, right? Yeah. And it's David Jones? Yeah. Mm. So, so far... We have all the pretty horses and in parentheses for people to add to their to their list. Heidi, do you have? Well, let me ask you the 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 uh, opening question first. How many books of fiction have you read this year? I've I've read a lot. I've I've probably read fifty. I've read oh, a lot wow. of wow. fiction this year. Heidi, why? That's brilliant. I don't know. I feel so. Here's this is my reading pattern, and I'm about to go through it again. Like this is going to happen. I can guarantee it. At the beginning of the year, I make a reading list, and I say. And how long is that list? Um. I mean, is this like a a realistic list, or is this is is like these are all the books I want to read, and I'll read them? I try to I try to make it realistic, but then it derails because this is what happens at the beginning of the year. I say to myself, "Self, you don't read enough nonfiction." You need to read more serious nonfiction. And I've already started. This is already happening. I'm not breaking out of the cycle this year. And and then January and February, I do a lot of reading of nonfiction. And I just read close reads books. And then 
like my um, guilty pleasure, you know, Sunday afternoon, Agatha Christie, PG Woodhouse, that kind of thing. Um, and then um, while well, sports ball is going on, of course, because I am watching sports with my family. So, um, and then about March-ish, I just stop reading serious nonfiction. Like I would bring it with me when I go places, you know, like I'll get on the plane with like my serious nonfiction book. And then instead of that, I just read a book that I buy at the bookstore in the airport. <laughs> then I get interested in it. And then I read everything that author wrote. And then I'm like off to the races and I'm just reading fiction again. Hmm. Happens every year. Hmm. Okay. And so I slow down. Okay. So. Then, then who, who is, what is one novel that, that took you on that journey this year? You may, um, maybe one that maybe what's one that you even bought in an airport. Okay. So one I bought in an airport was, and David, you know about this because I asked for your recommendation, um, was the nickel boys, Colson Whitehead. Oh yeah. Um, I can't, strongly recommend this novel because it's extremely traumatic. It is a fictionalized account of a true boy's home in which horrific abuse happened. Um, And Colson Whitehead took this story and fictionalized it um, and said it during the time of civil rights. Um, And so it's this exploration of racism, entrenched institutionalized racism with uh, two vulnerable children, young boys. It's very traumatic, uh, but it has a redemptive um, trajectory to it. So it, it, it is not a nihilistic book. It's an exploration of what it would mean to be become free from both personal abuse and institutionalized abuse. Um, so it's, I could cautiously recommend it and say it's a redemptive story, but if it's, it is as traumatic as it sounds to read it. So Colson Whitehead won the Pulitzer a couple of years mm-hmm. ago for the underground railroad. Um, that's what I thought. That's what I thought. Mm-hmm. So which after I read Nickel Boys, which was serendipitous, I bought it in the airport because I didn't want to read After Virtue on the plane. <laughs> 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 then I, which I did finish After Virtue. It's excellent. Like I, I mean, it's definitely a must read. Hey, nonfiction next episode. Yes. But um, I did derail a little bit from that plan. And, re- and, then, and then I liked it so much. I bought everything that Colson Whitehead wrote and I read everything. Another book that that happened with, uh, another author that happened with was John Lecrae when we read The Spy Who Came In From The Cold and I loved it. And so I um, read his other work and man, I, these are getting dark, these recommendations. I will say my number one most impactful and haunting story of 2019 that is like stayed with me, the kind of book you read and it haunts you. You think about it when you wake up at night, that kind of story is A Perfect Spy by John Le Carre. I loved that novel. Mm. I was enthralled with that novel. And it is maybe the saddest book I've, I've, you all know this, I've read a lot of books. That may be the saddest book I've ever read. And, and sad in like a transformative kind of way. Like it just haunted me. That just like gripped me. Everything about it. I cried like buckets reading that book. And it's a spy novel. Hmm. I loved that. Because it's really a psychological study of a lost soul. It's beautifully written as all John Lecrae is. And it's extremely haunting. Yeah, I think that 
if that or Little Drummer Girl are his masterpieces. Uh-huh. A lot of people go, I mean, I think The Spy Who Came From The Cold is incredible. Um, and a lot of people think Tinker Taylor is great, but I think it's either that one or Little Drummer Girl um, that are just, are his best. I read his newest novel this year, actually. <clears throat> what did you think of it? I haven't read it yet. It's fine. Yeah, He's angry. That's what I heard. He's just angry now. I mean, it's basically about spies in post, well, I guess Brexit England who are mad that Trump's president. Um, and it gets, <laughs> it, it ends anticlimactically and it ends, and it is a little bit, um, it's like the, the anger is just, is too palpable, too palpable that yeah. it keeps it from being as nuanced as a lot of his work is. And it feels like he's, you know, in some ways it kind of feels like he rushed a book out during this time because he's 88 or whatever he is, which I don't begrudge the man. It just doesn't live up to his, for most people it's good, you know, it, but it doesn't live up to his, um, I think, I think on Goodreads when I just was kind of trying to keep a record for myself, I think I gave it three stars out of five thinking for John Le Carre, it's three stars for most people. It's probably four, you know, mm-hmm. um, uh, going on a scale, but yeah, that perfect spy is a, is a great book. So, so far we have re- referenced, um, a Perfect Spy, The Nickel Boys, in parentheses, All the Pretty Horses. Heidi, um, did you read The Underground Railroad? I did. Would you recommend that to it. people? Yeah, I think maybe even more than Nickel Boys, Underground Railroad. was a, it was it It's a stronger novel. Um, and so if you're, if you're going to say a recommendation from me, like post on Instagram or whatever, I'd say Underground Railroad is stronger than Nickel Boys. Um, no, it did win the Pulitzer. <laughs> yeah, and rightfully. And he's he's a brilliant writer. He's a very modern writer, though. Like, it's, um, the, he's writing, you know, there are writers who write, authors who write for a time and authors who write for all time. He is, he's the voice of a time. He's a zeitgeist voice, and he does it beautifully. Um, so, I, I mean, I, I definitely recommend his work. Hmm. Okay, let's, um, let's take a slightly different angle. Um, Tim. What book that you read this year most surprised you? I mean, we, you knew what all the pretty horses, you were going to love it. You knew that you were going to like War and Peace. I mean, yeah. those are two pretty on-brand reads for you. Um, you're reading a Cormac McCarthy yeah. novel and a Russian. Um, what was <laughs> a book that you read this year that, that surprised you, that, that you were maybe even pleasantly surprised by? Well, it's a, um, it's a nonfiction book. So I don't know that I should answer that question. Save it. Yeah, let's save that one. Uh, Sarah Jane, do you have a piece of a work of fiction that that was pleasantly surprising for you? Yes, I read Brideshead Revisited again. And Mm. I had pigeonholed this book. I read it first when I was at university at Oxford um, and found it sort of saccharine and, and a bit frothy. And I thought it was overwritten. And I totally, that was a reflection on me. I totally didn't understand Wars novel and reading it again and actually teaching it um I've come to appreciate how rich and deep the symbolism is in this novel and how beautifully structured it is and what a work of art it is so um I also enjoyed listening to to you talk about it on close reads as well but um <laughs> Bride's Head Revisited really surprised me and it's mm. it's different to Wars other books it sort of takes the same yeah, comic yeah. frameworks but employs them to explore the operation of divine grace. Really, mm. really brilliant novel. Hidden mm. depths to that. Heidi, what about you? My big surprise was A Perfect Spy. 
Oh, okay. I yeah. just picked it up and thought it was going to be a spy novel. Yeah, yeah. So that was, yeah, that was mine. Mm. I realized I haven't mentioned one yet. I want to mention um, Booth Tarkington's The Magnificent Ambersons. Has any, have any of you read that? No. No, I haven't heard of that. No. So the Magnificent Ambersons is most famous for the movie version. Orson Welles made a movie of this book uh, in the 40s or 50s. It's got Joseph Cotton in it and a bunch of other people. And it's famous. It's probably the most famous movie controversy of all time because the studio didn't like his ending. And they basically, when he was in, I think he was in Havana, they basically took it from him and re-shot it and re-edited it and made it much less dark. Um, and, And it's so you can, you know, and then they... Wow. All kinds of questions about what versions are out there and if you can even find the original. And it was this huge controversy that impacted his relationship with the studio, which was a big deal back then, much bigger than it is now. And so the book kind of gets lost, but it's written by Booth Tarkington, who is most famous for um, the uh, Penrod stories, probably in America. But it's a novel about the, or or Alice Adams. I think he won the Pulitzer for Alice Adams, but um, it won the. It won, I think this may have even... Oh, no, it, that's, the reason I read it is because it won the Pulitzer 100 years ago. It was the 1919 winner of the Pulitzer Prize. Uh-huh. Um, and um, so I read it for a podcast that I'm, that I'm working on. But I, was, I read it kind of out of obligation. That's kind of how I started it. And I was thinking, well, this is going to be kind of a middling early 20th century novel about manners and a certain way of life going away. Kind of like a boring version of a lot of the great English novels of the period um, or a Henry James novel or something, but it, uh, it was actually, it's fascinating. And the characterization, the characters themselves are, are brilliant. Um, it, it, it's one of those novels that takes you a couple of chapters to get into, but I highly recommend checking that out. Um, okay. So it's 1919 um, Booth Tarkington's The Magnificent Ambersons. And then do watch the movie. It's de- even with the, the, the uh, controversies, it's still one of the greatest movies ever made. Um, and, you know, I think Criterion made it. Did he ever version. get a chance to re-edit it, David? Uh, no. I mean, that's, that's part of the... Uh. I don't think there's an editor's, editor's version out there. Um, or an edit, what director's cut, I don't think there's one out there. Um, but he was very angry about it, and he loved the book so much. And there's a couple different like the movie, I think his original movie was going to be a little darker than the book, but then they made the new, ver- the version that eventually came in the movie be- was a lot less dark than the book itself. So, you know, there's some, there's some de- several degrees of darkness between the movie, <laughs> the movie versions. Um, but it, yeah, it's a, it's an incredible movie and Joseph Cotton is amazing in it. And um, if, if you um, like these uh, old, old 1940s Hollywood stories, with great black and white cinematography and interesting writing. I definitely, definitely recommend you check it out. Um, okay. Let's, 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 uh, let's do this. Tim, a book that you were disappointed in this year. David, this is going to break your heart. And I read this book largely because I believe so highly in your um, recommendations and recommendations. So I read Never Let Me Go. No longer trust my taste. <laughs> no, no, I do. I just we did not see Never Let Me Go. Um, we did not see it the same way. So Never Let Me Go by 
Kazuo Ishiguro, same author as Remains of the Day, who did Remains of the Day on Close Reads. I adore that book. I did not like Never Let Me Go. I kind of had to muscle my way through the end. And I honestly don't know why it's so highly decorated. I thought it was baggy. I did not think that the big revelation laid in the book was like all that stunning or gripping. And I, I just did not enjoy it. I did not enjoy it. And I am a little bit lost as to why that book, why, why people that I respect so much like that book. I, I don't know that if I missed something or David, maybe you and, Maybe you and Graham are missing something. <laughs> be funny if it turned out you read like something by like Murakami or something and just thought it was. Because <laughs> that, ha- that that's. Wait, say I, it again. Say it again. I, say, I actually know somebody who was like complaining about a Nishiguro novel and it turned out they'd read a Murakami novel, which is you know, <laughs> very different. Oh, really? Very different. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Heidi, have you read this? I've never read it. Uh, Sarah Jane, have you? Yeah. Never let me go. Yeah, I've read it. So whose side are you on on this one? Um, I would, I think I agree with Tim that, that it's um, probably a bit, it probably falls a bit short of where it's aiming, but I think he had a kind of premonition um, of, of where some of the social trends were going. Um, I'm trying not to reveal the big secret of the book. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. He, I think it's quite bold in the sense that he does write against the current of the culture. Um, but yes, mm. I think the bit where they go and stay in the, the little farmhouse is, mm, it's a bit of a non event really. <laughs> um, see, we can't talk about this without, we can't really talk <laughs> about this right now. <laughs> um, can I, can I ask a question, David? Yeah. Sarah Jane, if you, if I had read the book 10, 15 years ago, do you think I'd have a different impression of it? No, but I think perhaps if you'd read it, oh, this is now going to sound like really, like I'm really insulting you. I have no idea how old you are. But if you'd read it when you're 13, 14, 15 years old, I think it would really appeal. Oh yeah. But maybe that's how old you yeah, were yeah, yeah. 10, 15 years ago. So. It is. I, I would have been 13 or 14, 10 or 15 years ago. So, yeah. <laughs> that was a good save, though. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I probably read, I read this when I was in college for 13, sure. 13, 14. Yeah. <laughs> five, five years ago. Um, no, I read it when I was in college first. So maybe that, maybe, you know, maybe there is something to that. Um, I actually... Have you reread it since then, David? Yeah, once. But I mean, I, I haven't... I, I'm, I, if I've, I don't think I've ever meant to claim that it's like, you know, the great English novel of the 20th, first century or anything. Yeah. Um, I, I, enjoy, I enjoy it, but I don't think it's as good a novel as Remains of the Day. Mm. Um, and I okay, don't yeah. think it's as good actually i do think it's better than the buried giant i don't like the buried giant at all um which is his newer his newer book um did you ever read room by mo donahue uh i actually have not read the whole thing i i read started it and then i stopped it i read that about the same time as um never let me go and and 
I just think that was sort of fashionable at the time. It was this restricted narrative perspective where mm-hmm. the reader has to figure out what's happening in the story as the story unfolds. Um, mm. It just it seemed to be a fashionable thing that writers were doing mm-hmm. then. So th- what I do, I want to ask you guys something. When when you're reading a book, Tim, you mentioned you kind of had to slog through the end of it or push through the end of it or whatever. And then yeah. I mentioned that I'd not kept reading room although i don't know that it was because i didn't like it i think it's just a lot going on do do you is that what do you guys do when you're reading a book that you don't love do you do you stop or do you push through tim it seems like you push through but is that your customary approach i'm less inclined to muscle through these days i feel like there's so many wonderful things to read yeah yeah i i just don't have as strong an impulse to muscle through to get to the end if i'm halfway through or three quarters of the way through in the books, like I just don't think it's working, then I, I think it's reasonable to assume that the end's not going to suddenly save it. Mm. I think there's usually, if you get halfway through a book, there you can see that it has enough promise that the end is going to pay off or it's not going to pay off. So I just, it's rare that I muscle through as much as I did maybe 10 years ago when I was 13 or 14. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I really doubt. I really kind of like soft pedaled that joke, and I, I was afraid that it wouldn't even gonna land. <laughs> it's the youthful timbre of your voice that portrays uh-huh. how young you are. <laughs> yes. Do you do you quit books or do you read them through? Uh, it depends. Mostly, I finish a book if I start it, but every once in a while, I'll I'll just know American Gods Neil Gaiman I didn't finish that I thought it was horrible me um, neither me neither I like him I just hated that book and I I mean not only did I dislike it I like I thought it was bad for me like, as I was reading it I'm like oh it's just like a super dark version of like it's a wonderful life that if you give up on the gods mm. they'll disappear and I so that but like dark like I felt like this is a bad book to finish like this is distorting then i'll then i'll just stop Mm. um or if i really am bored to death i'll stop but most of the time with a novel i at least want to know how it ends like i i do want to know how it ends so most of the time i finish maybe not with the same amount of attention Yeah, yeah 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 sarah jane are you a stopper or a finisher i'm with heidi i think i tend to finish books but it does depend on who's recommended it to me and yeah. what hmm. the kind of yeah whether it's a book you know that I ought to read because sometimes not liking a book can be a reflection on me <laughs> and I sure and yes. having read it then I I realized that you know I was in the wrong frame of mind or something um hmm. but if you know if it's a kind of airport novel that I've just picked up randomly which I hardly ever do to be honest uh no I would give that very short shrift yeah mm-hmm. yeah so what's the sign for you to stop Mm. What's the or what's the first thing that that makes you start thinking? Oh, I'm going to quit this. Is it thematic? Is it something in the prose? Is it the plots? Is it oh, characters? The what, is, is there? I make judgments very quickly, and that that's a great fault of mine often. But something like I don't know, let's say a Dan Brown novel. I think <laughs> yeah. I would have decided by the first page that I couldn't bear to read anymore. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, well, <clears throat> we should get moving here. So the, you each, I think we each have three, is that right? Three novels that you, that you want to mention or yeah. discuss or recommend. Okay. Heidi, I'm gonna go with you first. Uh, 
is do you have any other novels besides uh, a perfect spy <laughs> <laughs> um I have a river runs through it on my list, but I'm assuming that our listeners are reading that along with us right now. So here's another book I'd recommend. And it's an older book, kind of an awkwardly old book, not like old enough to be a classic, um, but old enough to be like out of fashion. But I loved it when I read it this year. And that's Ron Hansen's Mariette in Ecstasy. Hmm. Um, oh, I own that book. Is it good? It's great. It's great. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. I've picked it up 10 times and I've been like, hmm, is, is today the day that I begin it? I'm so glad. So say more, Heidi. Sorry to interrupt you. No, I'm glad you did. It's it's a, it's, it was a controversial book in its time. It was published in the early 90s. Uh, and it the the premise of the novel is that there's this young woman who becomes a uh, postulant in a convent and she's um and she experiences she's very devout and pious from the very beginning she's a beautiful young woman comes from a wealthy home gives everything up and nobody really knows why she's a bit of a mystery and a question mark when she comes into the convent and the the convent is pretty divided on her some people think she's a holy young woman and some of the nuns think she is um uh, grasping for attention. Um, and then she experiences stigmata. And the whole question of the novel is whether it is real. And that's the whole novel. It's huh. so enigmatic. It's a very mysterious novel. Uh, it, it does not take a stand. And so the reader has to, which means it's really more of a mirror into your own religious convictions than it is into the character of Mariette, which is perfect. And it's perfectly written. The craft of it's wonderful. Um, and I, I just couldn't recommend it more. I loved it. Wow. Mm-hmm. Heidi, what's the name of the author? Ron Hansen. He also, he's the same one who wrote. Yeah, David, you're going to remember better than me. He wrote the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Jesse Robert James Ford. By the That's, coward Robert Ford. That's right. Yeah. And he also wrote a book about Gerard Manley Hopkins called exiles, which I have on my list to read over Christmas break. Um, and I want to hear how that is. Yeah. So it's, I mean, he's just a, a brilliant writer. Um, the novel's really well crafted if you're into that kind of thing. Um, but <laughs> it's also just like very, you know, some people it's, it's kind of a page turner. And so if you're not, because you want to find out, like you want to know, you want to know more about Mariette. Um, and so you have to kind of make yourself pay attention to the writing because it's such a page turner. But if you do, it's very, very rewarding. Mm. In terms of its themes, it reminds me of the Muriel Spark novel called Aiding and Abetting. Have you ever heard of that one? No, I have not. Um, no. It's, it's, yours sounds profound and contemplative. This one is hilarious. It's a, a woman <laughs> who has faked having stigmata for several years and then got found out, runs off to Paris and sets up a kind of psychiatry clinic where her method is that she just talks exclusively about herself to the patients. And one day, (laughs) one day two men come in, both claiming to be Lord Lucan. And the novel um, then revolves around that. She's trying to discover which one is lying or whether both of them are lying. That funny. sounds great. Yeah. I'm going to add that to my list. It's short. That's what I love about Muriel Spark. 
<laughs> I'm sitting here. I've got my Goodreads homepage open, and I, when you guys talk about these books, I'm typing them into the search books bar, and then clicking want to read. So I'm like now just like piling up the books that I want to read. Thanks. <laughs> Goodreads well, is great, isn't it? I love that website. That is so great. It is. I do too. Sarah Jane is. Uh, What's a book that you uh, you want to recommend? Oh, um, I would love everyone to read Hard Times. Mm-hmm. If you haven't already, I mean, you might have. It's Charles Dickens and it is, essentially, it is a fairy tale. John Ruskin says that Dickens writes in a circle of stage fire and it's very easy to to get sucked into the trap of thinking this is a sort of dogmatic didactic preachy novel about the condition of england it's really not it's Mm. it's it's an interesting um depiction of the power of fancy and imagination to overcome all sorts of difficulties and it's it's really interesting to a lot of us because we're involved in education in various ways and it, it sort of looks at how education became industrialized in, in the Victorian book with Gradgrind, right? Yeah, it begins with Gradgrind, exactly. It's that famous scene, facts, facts, teach nothing but facts, root out everything else. Um, so that first scene is probably quite familiar to a lot of listeners. Um, and it's a little less long than most of his books. <laughs> it is, in fact, one of the shortest. There are only about 20 characters. And there are some wonderful um, sort of analogies running through the book so one is of the good samaritan and how the characters have to learn that um there's an there's a kind of uh, something beyond just the economy of of give and take of transactions that that Mm. there's love and that um sometimes you give and you don't receive and that's that's what's the important thing it's really brilliant i love teaching it i love reading it so as most of our listeners probably know by now, or many of them anyway, we're doing uh, some Patreon bonus episodes. And for the first half of the year, we're going to do Crime and Punishment. And then for the second half of the year, at some point, we're going to do a Dickens novel. And Hard Times was the one that I was going to propose to you all that we that we discussed. I said, sounds smart, David. Great idea. Yeah. So it's uh, settled then. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Yeah, done, done. That's how decisions get made. <laughs> Tim, do you, what do you want to recommend next? War and Peace. It's, I mean, I, I feel a little bit silly recommending it. It's kind of like saying um, to a movie buff, you know, you should try Citizen Kane. I, I hear it's really good. I mean, it's just, you know, it's on, it's near the pinnacle if it's not at the pinnacle. And I think I, I read War and Peace a long time ago, and then I read Anna Karenina, and I was so overwhelmed by how incredibly good Anna Karenina is that I kind of let War and Peace slip to the back. But it's absolutely fantastic. I mean, I, I, I think Anna is a story of two couples, and it's, it's universal in that it really focuses tightly on these, these two couples. But War and Peace is about, I mean, it's a pantheon of characters. And the fact that he, that you, I never get lost in who, whose story I'm following. Um, 
it's just absolutely magisterial. And it's about a time in Russian history that's especially fascinating, the Napoleonic Wars, the invasion of Napoleon into Russia, and the effects that it has upon the Russian nobility. It's just so sumptuous. And I, it's, I don't know, 1,200 pages long, and you don't want it to end. You wish it could be another 300 pages. <laughs> yeah, yes, it's true. I'm not, I don't know who that is. That's David. Maybe that's you that's voicing dissent in a, in a mewling voice. I don't know that I, 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 I want it to do <laughs> <laughs> Um. War and Peace, part deux. <laughs> um, okay, so, so far, um, Sarajan, you have recommended In Parenthesis by David Jones and Hard Times by Dickens. Tim, you have mentioned All the Pretty Horses and War and Peace. Heidi, you've mentioned Marriott and Ecstasy and A Perfect Spy. I have mentioned... What did I mention? Which one was it? Oh, Magnificent Ambersons. I didn't write my own down. That I'm writing down what you guys are saying. <laughs> and then I also want to mention a book, um, an English book, a short novel, which... If you want to read something that's not going to take you that you could read twenty times while you read War and Peace, um, you can read A Month in the Country by J.L. Carr. Sergeant, have you read A Month in the Country? I haven't, but it's one of those ones that's been there on the periphery. I read a terrible novel once called Spies by Michael Frame, um, who's a journalist, and mm-hmm. it's either A Month in the Country or The Go Between, which is maybe it's The Go Between actually, which is kind of a parallel to that novel. A Month in the oh, Country is okay. really short, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's it's the length of all, A River Runs Through. You know, it's it's 125 pages, maybe. Yeah. Um, and it's worth York, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a New York Review yeah. of Books version that they... I mean, I think it had been out of print for a while, and uh, New York Review of Books uh, brought it back. And uh, <clears throat> it's about a... Uh, a World War One veteran named Tom Birkin. And he's an artist. So he's come out of the war and his marriage fell apart essentially while he was gone at the war. And he has been hired by a church to restore a, a, a mural that is recently discovered. It's a medieval mural in the local church. And so he's basically living in the bell tower of the church and it's summertime and he's, you know, surrounded by this, uh, the countryside around this church and he's meeting all these local characters and he's reflecting on his time in the war and his marriage and his questions about faith and doubt and all that while restoring this absolutely incredible medieval mural, which this church is trying to decide what they're going to do with, are they going to let people come see it, all that sort of stuff. Oh. So there's a lot of reflections on, on, on art as well in it. And he's not an artist himself, but he's someone who restores art. And that's, he's got this very unique skill set that was passed on through his family. Um, and it's, it's, it's a really great um, sort of, the prose is really lush and poetic and um, it's a great, it's a great summer novel. I did a podcast with, with uh, somebody who was, and, and the, the, we were each listing some of our favorite novels for the summer and he mentioned it to me. So I immediately read it and read it pretty quickly. So I, I recommend, uh, recommend that one if you're looking for something, you know, a little bit more uh, brisk, shall we say. <laughs> not that long novels are bad, Tim. I'm not saying that, but you know, sometimes you need something that's a little shorter. Um, it's true. Okay. So, you each have three, you said. So Heidi, what would be your third choice that you're going to recommend that's going to be on your list? Well, Tim and I did not consult each other, but mine is Russian as well. <laughs> and that is, um, I found this old this book in a book, old bookstore 
like in the back. I thought you were uh, going to say you found a book in a bookstore. I did find a book in a bookstore. It was amazing. Um, <laughs> uh, what a wonder. So I'm going to recommend Chekhov. Okay. Um, mm. His short stories. I found um, this book. It's actually really hard to find now. I was just looking on Amazon to see if you can find it. But the the one that I have is called Seven Short Novels by Chekhov. And not, I mean, Chekhov was prolific. He wrote, I mean, just many, 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 many short stories. And all of them are brilliant. But this specific novel, if you can, or this specific collection, if you can find it, was just captured me. I've read a lot of Chekhov. But this, the way that these stories were ordered... Um, was just delightful. And they're a little bit longer, more like novellas. So, um, but anything by Chekhov is brilliant. Um, he gives kind of an insight into the Russian mind for those uh, readers who aren't super familiar with the Russians and will be reading Crime and Punishment along with us. Chekhov might be a good companion because he's very different, but still gives a like a very, very Russian uh, insight into kind of how the Russians um, not only... Uh, think about suffering a lot, but value suffering as formative to the soul. They don't try to resist it. In fact, they enter into it um, like so passionately <laughs> and welcome it that it's a, like a defining characteristic of Russian writing. Um, and so Americans can be a bit overwhelmed by that at first, I think, but it's worth diving into. And Chekhov writes very differently from Dostoevsky. Um, and so I think... I would highly recommend this year picking up Chekhov and reading some short stories. So I'm looking on Goodreads to see, is it the Bishop and other stories? Do you know what the collection? No, but that is, I mean, the Bishop is in this one that I'm, I I guess I would just recommend just some Chekhov short stories. Yeah. There, there is a selected stories of Chekhov collection that's, that's done by Pivir and Volokhodsky. And it's great. I have that one. Um, And it it does have some of them. The Bishop, um, you want the, oh, there's one called Murder that is really good. Like there's, there's, they're just fantastic. Tim, are you a Chekhov reader? Yes, 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 yes. And his plays. Yes. The Cherry Orchard is just so delightful. Delightful is the wrong word. But yes, short story. I think Chekhov is superb. Hmm. And can I say, I want to say something else. This time in Russian history, there is this sort of fecundity of incredible authors, all born within a generation. Chekhov, Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, Turgenev. Gogol is a little bit older, but they all kind of looking back to Gogol. And there's whatever was happening and there are a lot of things happening in Russia at the time, it kind of burst forth with some of the most memorable authors and we're all still reading them. It's like you see certain times in history, like the great Greek dramatists. There are like five great, incredible Greek theater writers, all born within about 50 years of each other. And you just think, how? what is going on? that all of these people are emerging at the same time with this incredible gift. And this is one of those periods in world history, the Russians in the mid to late 19th century, Mm. an incredible output of just supreme writers in Chekhov is is among them. Mm. 
So Heidi, then your list, your three is Marriott and Ecstasy, A Perfect Spy, and Chekhov's short, short, short fiction. Stories. Okay. Yeah. Um, we'll, I'll come back to you in a minute for you know one final recommendation if you have one that you want to add as an as an honorable mention, so to speak. Um, or if there's a collection of poetry that you'd like to recommend. Uh, Tim, I'll, I'll go turn to you next. What's your so far? So I said, uh, All the Pretty Horses and War and Peace. What's your third? Uh, All the Pretty Horses, War and Peace. David, all the other things that I read were close reads. Oh. All the other ones that I, excuse me, all the other ones that I would recommend were close reads books. I have a couple others that I just, I wasn't crazy about, like Never Let Me Go, that weren't close reads. Yeah. So I don't know that I've got another one that I can recommend. All right. Well, Sarah Jane, your turn. (laughs) I would like to take us back to Frankenstein by Mary Shelley, Mm. which I'm sure everyone has already read, but let's just consider the conditions of the production of this text. They're on the edge of a lake in Italy, in the Villa Diodati. They've kind of run away from England because they're all reprobates. (laughs) <laughs> and in the middle of the night in a storm, they have a competition to write a ghost story. And Mary Shelley, who's like 19, sits yeah. down and mm. writes what is essentially the first science fiction novel ever. And it is full of um, references to Milton. It mm. explores what happens if you split a person's emotion from their rationality. Um, it's it's just the most fascinating and terrifying story of um, depravity, lust for power, um, the need to kind of wander in the mountains. I just love this novel. I've read it many times. And it's, it's one that I think we should, we should be grateful for. Well, I'll echo that. I think that when I've recommended Frankenstein, I, the, those are the Frankenstein and Jane Eyre are the two novels I recommend yes. for people who um, say, I want to read literature and I don't know how to begin. Those are my two first recommendations. Yeah. Mm. Well, I know Tim does. Can I interject here? I, he, I've talked to David about a, a proposal to you guys <laughs> for the close reads podcast on Frankenstein. I think Frankenstein for the reasons that Sarah Jane just mentioned is a great idea and it's a bad book. That's my contention. And what I propose is what if I got on like maybe the first podcast and issued my complaints and then I came on later in the episodes and maybe you guys will have convinced me that, um, I was wrong about Frankenstein. So you wouldn't actually Something be there. To consider. He'll come for the be beginning there. and the end. You wouldn't be there in the middle. When I would be willing. <laughs> when we're arguing. I would be willing to be there. What I was thinking was, <laughs> I just step aside and I listen to the podcast out of the room. If, if it would be helpful for me to be there, then I will be there. I'm afraid of. Um, <laughs> no, I'm very into this idea of you not being there and then coming I'm back. I'm afraid and that to- my sour attitude would just like. <laughs> 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 Sometimes I do. I think it's a great idea. I think, I, I, let me back up. I think Frankenstein is a great idea. I think the reasons that you just mentioned, Sarah Jane, are what makes it a great idea. But when I read that book, I just, I just don't think it's, 
a good book. Oh, it's so delicately crafted. It's framed on the ice with that peculiar explorer character who is a bit, he's basically Frankenstein all over again. It's amazing, this book. Well, we'll fight this out later. Because <laughs> we are going to be covering my it this heart is, My heart is open to being convinced. Do you know what I thought you were going to suggest, Tim? Is that we all go what? to a villa in Italy and we have a Close Reads ghost story writing competition. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Me in a dream. That's what I'm recommending. <laughs> That's what I'm recommending, you guys. <laughs> yeah, I'm all for this. I mean, let's this, just this make that happen. We could record plenty of good episodes while we're there. Although there were some... Um, how to put this? Uh, there were some... Bonus... Um, circumstances that led to some of their various storytelling. <laughs> um, if you know some what I mean. Bonus circumstances. You guys they need had to a little a help. more unhappy. They had a little yeah. bit of yeah. help. Yeah. <laughs> we all need to be much more tormented than we are. Yeah. And also we might need to get some, yeah. um, um, you know, some other agents. Heroin? Yeah. There you go. Yep. <laughs> um, okay. So then we have, we have uh, our list so far is Frankenstein in parentheses, hard times, Marriott next to see a perfect spy, Chekhov's seven short stories or short, short stories by Chekhov, war and peace, all the pretty horses, the magnificent Ambersons and a month from the country. So I'm going to uh, add one more. And I've been looking at my list, trying to think of exactly what I should say, because I read a lot of different like crime fiction this year, uh, much of which I would recommend, but people have heard me talk about this before, but the one, the book that I really want to recommend is a collection of poetry by Morris Manning called Rail Splitter. Now, if you follow me online or you get the newsletter or whatever, you know that I love this book. I interviewed Morris Manning for our magazine, but I think Rail Splitter is an absolutely wonderful collection of poetry. Heidi, have you read it at all yet? Yes, I have. It's wonderful. I agree. It's, yeah. So the whole idea in this collection is that all the poems are from the perspective of the recently assassinated Abraham Lincoln. So he's dead. He's <laughs> basically a ghost and he's looking back on his life on what his life means, what his assassination means. And so there's a lot in there about um, place and family and legacy and memory and childhood and all these things that, you know, a dead person would look back on, but also the the high stakes of having been the president who, um, you know, over had to kind of oversee the civil war and, and such a crucial time in our history. So um, it's an amazing collection of poetry. It's in my, my favorite collection from 2019 probably is Israel splitter. Um, so it's uh, it's new. It hasn't withstood the test of time, so to speak, or stood the test of time, but it's um, it's, I mean, I think it's kind of brilliant, honestly. <laughs> um, there, that's the second George or not George Washington. That's a different president. Abraham Lincoln. Um, Abraham Lincoln ghost story that I think is amazing. The other one is George Saunders' novel, um, Lincoln and the Bardo, which is Lincoln another, and the Bordeaux, yeah. And well, in the Bardo, it's another um, Abraham Lincoln ghost story, and it's per, like it's so good, it's dazzling. It's I I can't recommend it enough. It's fantastic, and Rail Splitter has the same kind of quality of this haunted. Man, it's an exploration of a great leader and a haunted man, and what you do with the life 
um, that you've left behind. It's it's very platonic, right? The city is like the man. It very much explores this that same idea that there's there's the soul and then there's the society. And he impacted, he lived both so wholeheartedly. It lends itself to kind of that contemplation of a life um, that is both well-lived and also fragmented and tragic. Mm. Mm. You know, I, I like the idea that you mentioned that he's haunted because you know, usually you think of the ghost as being the haunter, but in this, it's this mm-hmm. kind of haunted ghost, um, which is in some cases traveling from place to place or remembering, but it's, I mean, or, or like visiting places and, and seeing people who he remembers, but also it's the fact that he as the ghost himself is haunted, which is a really, um, really interesting way to approach it. Okay. So that gives us a pretty good list. Tim, I, I'm curious, what is, you just mentioned two books, but what is your favorite, which book that we read this year on Close Reads not counting a river runs through it has stood or kept stayed with you throughout the whole year. Which one has kind of meant the most to you? Ooh, ooh, ooh. Um, Oh gosh. I'm trying to think of which ones are possibilities is remains of the day. Did we yeah, do that in 2019? Yep. Remains yeah. of the day. The spy came in from the cold little britches. You weren't on those though. Um, no. sens- sensibility, um, the odyssey, and the rector of Justin, and then a river runs through it. Yeah, I think it was Remains of the Day. Hmm. Man, I love that book. Heidi, that was so fun. That was, I loved that book too. Well, we should wrap this up. We've been going a while. Um, I think we had a, have a pretty good sense of what your, or what our various reading lives were like in 2019. But uh, Sarah Jane, Tim, Heidi, do any of you want to... Uh, add any kind of honorable mention or anything else that you feel like you need to say that you liked or, or maybe hated this year? <laughs> I would love to recommend a collection of poetry in the same vein as David's um, honorary mention. This, this is a collection called Waiting on the Word by Malcolm Geet. Uh-huh. And it is specifically for Advent. So it begins on December the 1st and goes all the way through to Epiphany. And it's such an amazing... Um, book where you can read a poem a day and there's a very short little essay with each poem and they're all to do with with the idea of advent of of waiting for salvation of waiting for the light to come and um there's that an amazing sonnet by john dunn called the annunciation where he contemplates mm. the theotokos and um there's some poems by christina rossetti tennyson there are some modern poems um, and, uh, it's just really amazing for me at the moment as well, because I'm expecting a baby who might be born mm. around epiphany mm. to mm. think that, um, that the incarnation is, is kind of such a real and powerful thing. Due date's the fifth, right? Yeah. Mm. Sarah Jane, I met Malcolm Guy, uh, two months ago. Did we, you? we talked Shakespeare. So did I. Yeah, I met. He was in Seattle. No kidding. Yeah, did was he talking about Seamus? Absolutely. Yeah, he was talking about Seamus Haney. Um, is it digging? Is that the name of the poem yes. that he referred to? Did he get out the rain stick? Yeah, yeah. Did he get out his rain stick? It's one of my favorite poems yeah. ever. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's. I had never. I had never known that poem. It was delightful. Um, Malcolm Geet is an incredible uh, academic intellect. He's a poet himself. He's he's kind of a, a minister, a theologian, a poet, an artist. Um, and he visited school and had he had people mesmerized. He was reading Seamus Heaney's poetry 
and he had this this rain stick with him, which is a sort of hollowed out piece of bamboo with seeds inside. And um, he was just captivating. He really loves poetry. You know, I'm. You guys mentioned Heaney and a collection. One of my favorite books that came out this year was a collection of his poetry, posthumous, of course, that his family collected. It's maybe a hundred poems, so it's not one of those ones that's that's meant to be. This is all of his collected poetry, or these are all his books put into one book. But it's a, around a hundred poems, I think, that his wife and his children specifically selected as this sort of posthumous collection that is meant to represent his work and oh. and his career. And it is incredible. I mean, that's that's another thing that 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 I would highly recommend. Grab that on Amazon or at a bookstore or something. Uh, like that. Mm. You'll spend a lot of uh, hours just just kind of lingering wallowing <laughs> in his poetry, uh, the, the, his use of language. I mean, some of it is, you have to really spend some time with it to get a sense of exactly what he's trying to say, but not in a way that's where he's meant to meaning to be obtuse, just in a way that's, you know, it's challenging. It's, he has such a, uh, capacity for making, um, images out of the language itself that you have to spend time with it to really be able to connect all the dots. Um, and it's, mm. I mean, digging is one of my favorite poems ever. Blackberry picking is an incredible poem. I mean, he, I, I think he might be, I mean, he's known for his Beowulf translation, but I actually think that in a hundred to 200 years, he might be one of those poets that, you know, we're going to look back on and say, why was this person not even more widely known? He really, um, really? he really is in Britain. He was kind of humorously called famous Seamus because he was famous in his own lifetime. So maybe... Yeah, um, yeah maybe it's an American perspective yeah. that I have then. <laughs> um, yeah, that's fair. So I stand corrected. But wow. um, I, nonetheless, I think that in a couple of centuries from now, people are still going to be reading his work. Whereas I think, you know, someone like Billy Oliver, who... Uh, Billy um, Collins, right? Collins. Yeah, Billy Mary, Oliver. You, see, Mary you Oliver. got him... You, yeah. you, conflated them. Yeah. That's what people do. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Mary Oliver too. I think Billy Collins and Mary Oliver both are, uh-huh. were very popular in their lifetimes and they're perfectly pleasant, good poets, but I don't know that in 200 years, we're going to look back mm. at them and think those are the voices of the generation. She's um, the one about with mm. geese. Is that right? Yeah. Wild geese. Yeah. Wild geese. Yeah. I met her once as well, actually. Yeah. I think her poetry is good. I think that her books on poetry are even better, but I think that mm-hmm. maybe we're not going to look back. I mean, I don't know. Mm, this I'd is kind agree. of an unfair assessment to make when I'm not even going to be alive then, but, um, who knows how the, how time will, will make, will impact these things. But, uh, Heidi, do you have a, uh, honorable mention or anything else you feel like you need to say? Recommendation. Um, maybe this one isn't super fair, but I, um, I was obsessed with purgatorio, uh, with purgatory, with Dante's purgatory this year. I read it several times because, um, I was doing a, like a really deep dive study on the um, classical understanding, classical Christian understanding of the vices and the virtues. I did a talk on it at the Circe Institute. I wrote a lot about it this year. Um, And it's spiritually meaningful to me. And I think really important, this idea of overcoming vices through the cultivation of virtue and the classical Christian understanding, what a big deal this was. And Purgatorio is entirely based on, you know, the mountain of Purgatory is the the, the seven vices, um, the harder vices to conquer at the, at 
the base of the mountain during the hard climb, the slog to the top. And as you become more free of the bigger vices, then uh, the mountain becomes a little easier to climb. And Dante built this into Purgatorio. Um, so the reason I say it's not fair is because it it so coincided with my own particular excitement and study this year. But I just think purgatory is so delightful and misunderstood because it isn't, it is not a poem about the afterlife. It's a poem about this life. Mm. And to read it in that way makes it, I think, so redemptive for modern Christians. If you're thinking how, you know, everybody's asking, how do I overcome these sins in my life? I keep praying and they keep sticking around and I can't get rid of them. And I, I think Dante has something to offer for that in Purgatorio. Did you read the Esalen translation or is that a translation yes. you'd recommend? Yeah. That is my favorite. I also really like the Musa translation, but I think that Esalen is more readable and, mm. um, and more, he has the same mindset of, of he's translating it less. I mean, he loves literature. I, I I'm a, big fan of Anthony Esselin. I'm sure we all are. He loves literature, but he is, he's very much thinking about it as spiritual formation. And that comes out in his translation. Um, I think more than some of the other, more than Musa, who's my other favorite. Mm. Um, so I did really love, I do really love the, the Esselin. He has notes in his, in illustrations, uh, which are wonderful. He has the Gustave Doré illustrations. Which are absolutely stunning. Yes. So, mm-hmm. anyway, I, I I really I really recommend that, and I think that that is the key in in many ways for modern Christians, especially modern Protestant Christians, in reading Purgatorio to say it's not about he's not making a statement about what's going to happen. It's about what's happening now. Like if I want to be less prideful, here's Dante has something to offer. Mm-hmm. So that's my last honorable mention. I'm going to read that. Oh, thank you. Yes. Hey, let can me I know chip what you think, in? and I'm going to have all of y'all's. Can I chip in for Longfellow's translation of Dante? Like forgotten, but should be redeemed. I've never like, read it. Oh man, it is okay. so terrific! It is so terrific. And I, I kind of cut my teeth on the music translation, and I think it's a. I, it, that strikes me as like a very academic kind of translation. But I think if you're just introducing someone to it, Longfellow's is such a pleasure to read. Hmm. So I, I, in our next podcast, we talk about nonfiction. I'm going to talk about um, a book that surprised me um, and that it's a book about Kipling and the, in it, it talks about how Longfellow inspired him. And in particular, he was very fond of that Dante translation, how much it influenced his, his, his writing. Even though Kipling isn't really, you know, known for his uh, Christian faith. <laughs> um, Tim, before we wrap up here, do you want to add any honorable mentions or anything that you, no, you want to no, no, no. say before we? I'm good. Thank you. All right. Well, this is, I think we, I think we curated a curated, a curated, curated, what did I just say? I think we curated a pretty, uh, a pretty good list. If people add these books to their list for 2020, in addition to the stuff we're doing on close reads, I, that's a pretty, uh, that's a pretty robust reading year, I think. Maybe we need a little more drama and then we need some more plays or something. Agreed. Um, actually, Tim, what is the checkoff play that you, that you recommended? I'll, I'm cherry going to your list. The Cherry Orchard. Cherry Orchard. Is that, that's your favorite of his? Yes. Okay. 
All right. So what, what I'll post all these in the uh, email newsletter and then also we'll post some of them on uh, Instagram as well. So do you want can, to hear a tiny bit of in parenthesis? Cause it's quite strange. Just as, yeah. if I give a taste, then people let's, might want to read it. Yeah. Let's close with that. Okay. So this is from the boast of die great coat, which comes about halfway through. My father's were with the black prince of Wales at the passion of the blind bohemian king. They served in these fields. It is in the histories that you can read it, Corporal. Boys Gower they were. It is writ down, yes. I was with Abel when his brother found him under the green tree. Mm. I built a house for Artaxerxes. I was the spear in Balin's hand that made waste King Pelham's land. And it goes on. But that's um, this wow. in the middle. That's just really amazing. Yeah. How long is this? Is the book overall? I can't overall? wait to read this. How long is it? It's about 100 pages, 200 pages. Okay. But it's okay. poetry. But- so the writing doesn't go all the way across the page. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. Well, this is a, I think this is a, this is a great list. So like I said, we'll post these. Um, and then the next thing, if you want to uh, head over to the Patreon page, then you can listen to us talk briefly about uh, nonfiction as well. I suspect that we will go less long on that episode than we did on this one, but uh, hope everyone enjoyed this. Um, if you want to send us comments uh, or just share your lists from 2019, some of your favorite things, you can uh, post those on the Facebook page. You can just search Close Reads Podcast on Facebook and those will come up or you can post them on Instagram or Twitter and then tag us at Close Reads Pods and we'll, uh, we'll retweet some of those, uh, share, share some of those on Instagram. And uh, you know, I'd love to hear what you guys are reading this year in addition to what you read while listening to the podcast. And with that, for Sarah Jane, for Tim and for Heidi, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you next time. And until then, happy reading. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.